iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? My definition of failure is not trying. And I just wasn't prepared to walk away. I knew that this could work and I just felt like It just has to happen. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. How are y'all doing? I hope that you're all keeping safe and finding pockets of levity and sanity amid these extraordinary and really thoroughly depressing times or troubling times. I am. Our three-year-old just took shipment of an electric car, courtesy of his grandmother. Unsolicited, but you know, no shade, grandma. So trying to teach him how to do a three-point turn in that thing um, has taken up an astounding amount of my free time. But you know, the thing only goes one mile an hour. It's no, there's no danger there. But when I'm not doing that, I'm writing and podcasting my life away. And so here we are, another week, another pod for you. And this is one that I've been thinking about for a while. So uh, just to give you a bit of background here, as a journalist, there are a few things I hate more than transcribing. So you do an interview, you get all this juicy stuff, you get back to the office, and then the dread sets in immediately as soon as you start, you hit play on the recorder. Transcribing sucks. And I'm also a bad typist, so it makes it worse. But anyway, it's a time suck. It's a soul suck. And so when I came across this little London company called Trint a few years ago, I was over the moon. So they charged like 40 bucks. This is back when I first came across them. It was about 40 bucks a month for three or four hours of automated transcription. It was amazing. So you just upload the file, and a few minutes later, there it is, this searchable audio and word file. It was amazing. But what happened after that was even more interesting. After Trent, a bunch of other transcription companies started cropping up all over the place. And they were slashing prices. The one I use now, Otter, offers 6,000 minutes for 10 bucks a month, which is, you know, it's effectively free or pretty close to it. And if you need just a few hours, there are others where you can actually just get it for free. So I wanted to connect with Trent's founder. He's a former journalist, his name is Jeff Kaufman, and I wanted to talk to him about what that is like. So you create this super cool new thing, and then you are immediately swamped just by the speed of technological improvement, and it just leads to this question, how do you adjust when the core thing you offer, the whole purpose of your startup, is suddenly available for free by a bunch of other people in a bunch of other places? So that is what we talk about. So it is an interview about Trent and Jeff's story, which is super interesting. 
But it's also an interview that I imagine a lot of entrepreneurs will identify with. You know, what happens when the problem you solve is no longer a problem. So anyhow, that is what uh, you're about to hear right now, uh, which is my conversation with Jeff Kaufman, founder of Trint. Um, And we spoke over Zoom, obviously, because that's all you ever do these days, from his home in London. Enjoy. Thanks for for taking the time. Appreciate it. Hey, greetings from the other side of the Atlantic uh, (laughs) in London. I first came across Trent probably almost three years ago because transcription for journalists is one of the worst parts of the job. At least for me, if you had an hour interview, it would take three hours to transcribe and it was like, stop, reverse, rewind, play it again, play it slow, try to get the words right, etc. It's just a nightmare. I feel your pain. I've lived it. I mean, you know, listen, for a journalist, transcription, manual transcription is a bit like waiting for an elevator or waiting for an airplane. It's just time and life lost. Exactly. And uh, that's candidly what inspired me to do this. It's magic. You just upload your file and you wait a few minutes and all of a sudden, like, boom, you have a new, you have a, a transcription. And it's not perfect, yeah, you know, but it's pretty close. I mean, it's funny you say magic, because first of all, two thoughts on that. Somebody once said to me, gee, transcription is inherently the most boring topic you could think of, and you guys somehow make it exciting, which I thought was, as a backhanded compliment, a pretty good one. (laughs) But the word magic, it's interesting you say it. We just relaunched our brand with a new logo and a new website at Trent.com, but also a new tagline. And we've moved beyond being a simple transcription service to a, a productivity tool sort of in, in the spoken word sort of the content production workflow. And our new tagline is actually speech to text to magic, because I think that magic does things that you didn't think were possible. It's so interesting because it was one of the things about my job as a broadcast journalist in Canada and the US and, and overseas as a foreign correspondent with ABC and CBS News, all of that glamour, you don't feel any of it when you're sitting in no. a hotel room or in, you know, or in a, you know, some forward operating base in Iraq with your computer on your lap and you're trying to listen to a, an interview and transcribe it because you need to have the precise words so you can write your story for Good Morning America or World News. That was the drill I lived literally for 30 years of my life. And seeing it automated and being able to say, hey, where did she talk about fear? Yeah. Bang. And, and you can I'll just search it, fear and it's there and it's it. like, oh my God, I don't have to listen to this right. tape for 15 minutes right. to try to figure out what it was. And, and because the machine generated text is glued to the source audio or video, you search the word fear, you go, oh yeah, here's the reference. You play it. And even if there's an error, you can quickly fix it. So that whole thing about scrubbing through audio to find the moment, how to not make friends as a broadcast journalist give somebody a very long interview and say, hey, can you find out, find that moment when she talks about fear? Oh, where is it in the interview? Uh, I think it's around, somewhere in the middle. And, you know, sort of if, if looks could kill, yes. you know, young, young interns or seasoned producers would say, you don't have a time code. It is this kind of bottleneck of inefficiency that comes out of, I kind of historically trace it back to the 1960s, the, the release of the first cassette recorders which became pretty ubiquitous by the 70s and 80s. And, you know, when I was a young reporter, I used to have a mini cassette, the reel-to-reel mini cassette that could fit in the palm of your hand. And I used to hold it just out, out of camera when I was a local reporter for in Toronto in my earliest days. 
then you know you'd, you'd rewind it you'd get in the in the, the news van or whatever it was and rewind to the top and then you'd listen to it you know as you're driving back to the station yeah. to edit your story which in those days was three quarter inch videotape don't even ask and uh <laughs> you know and you'd scribble down on your notepad in my my chicken scratch writing what the quotes were and and hope that you could find them and if the person was really long-winded or god help me if i was too curious and asked too many questions it's pain it's so interesting about this kind of particular pocket of technology let's call it is that your experience 30 years and before you were doing it decades more of people trying to just struggling through these mountains of audio trying to find that stuff transcribe etc used to be transcription services i know you have this bottleneck of inefficiency. What did you guys start? What year? So I left ABC News as London correspondent November 30th, 2014, and started building Trid December 1st, 2014, right. uh, with a team of three developers. We launched commercially to consumers, what we call prosumers, because they're professional yeah. consumers. It's not a consumer product. September of 16, and then Trend Enterprise was launched just over two years ago, spring of 2018 at NAB. Right. So call it four years. Four, almost, yeah. Three and a half years yeah. in the market, yeah. So, and in that time, so I came across you guys, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then later, and this is where I have to hold up my hand here, I came across a company called Otter. Sure. Who I've heard of them. Who, <laughs> so... I think what you guys were offering was 40, it was like 30 or 40 bucks a month for four hours, I think was what it was initially the plan that I was on. And then Otter, yeah. someone pointed point me to them, like they do 6,000 hours for nine bucks. And so what, what I'm interested in is just trying to understand, so you're in the midst of the, you're in the eye of this technological kind of revolution in transcription. And it goes from this impossible task to very quickly getting near free and how do you yeah, build a I business mean, in that transition because from a distance it looks like we're arch rivals and competitors yeah. what they do is great and you know if what you need is what they you know what they can help you with more power to you and to them our market is is not simply automated transcription mm. made searchable that's where we began that was our initial product in 2016 but you know we now have a collaborative tool so you're sitting where are you're in silicon valley yeah right? i'm in oakland okay so you're in oakland i'm sitting in london england you know say this was an interview and you know or we somebody else has done one you and i can collaborate on trent like google docs and listen to it and you can say where did she say fear i'm sure she said it and and we can talk both you know on the document through comments as you would in the behavior of google docs mm. we can highlight we can we can export we can share etc we have enterprise grade data security, military grade data security. We, we're certified by the International Standards Organization mm. with ISO 27001, which for a small startup, you must have run across this in the valley. Yep. It's a nightmare. Yep. It is a huge, huge lift, it's incredibly expensive. But you know, the clients we're going for are people who care about these things. They want to collaborate. They want to know their data is secure. You know, we have incredibly proactive customer success. We do training. We do enablement. We have uh, you know 24/7 customer support. What distinguishes us is we just have this fabulous user experience journey. Just because they can do what what we can do doesn't mean the products are the same. Yeah. We just got a, a note that came from a user saying, "Tried them, tried you. You guys make me weep. You're so beautiful to use. It's so easy. So yeah, you know." Competition is healthy. There will be more than one player in any yeah. market. Somebody once said to me, 
if you don't have a competitor after a couple of years, you got to ask whether you actually have a viable business. Because <laughs> we're differentiating by offering an evolving and more elaborate product for producing content and you know finding it, whether it's for journalists, whether it's for marketing content, for the big logos in the valley. Yeah. Most of the big logos around you are using Trent. You can tell that this excites me. And what's really, for me, kind of shocking is that I loved being a journalist. I mean, I ticked all of the yeah. check marks in my bucket list of journalism as a foreign correspondent for ABC, covered Latin America for 10 years, the Iraq War, the Arab Spring, you know, won a couple of Emmys, did all of that stuff. I mean, I couldn't imagine. And frankly, I was, if I'm honest, slightly nervous about what a second career would look like mm. after such an amazing first career. But wow, I mean, this is so interesting to be innovating and inventing and imagining, talking to users, saying, what, you know, well, what would you want this to do? And if you could, you know, invent Trent in two or three years, what would it look like? And it is as creative as anything I've done. And when you build an incredibly strong creative team and you can actually start to execute, you really feel like you're making a difference. So can we go back to the founding? So one of the things I'm, I want to kind of try to unpick or understand is what happened? How did this go from this impossible, I, terrible task to something that can be done in an automated way? I have no idea. I mean, it was totally unplanned, Danny. I mean, you know, people have master plans. I stumbled into this. You know those little cartoons where the light bulb goes off yeah. over the head? That's what happened. I was teaching a, a summer program for 21st century journalism, and a friend said, hey, if you're teaching 21st century journalism, you should come to MozFest uh, this weekend and see the cutting edge of innovation mm. in media. MozFest is this open source conference sponsored by Mozilla yeah. in London every fall. And people from around the world come and it's really developers, software developers. I don't actually know that I'd ever been around a group of software developers before I walked in that building. But this friend uh, who was actually with the Knight Foundation out of oh, Miami. Yeah. You know, I was ABC's correspondent in Miami for 10 years, so I know a lot of people at the Knight Foundation. He was working in London for a while, and he introduced me to some people and sort of to just sort of said, here's some interesting stuff. And I found it totally intimidating. You know, you see code on a, on, on a whiteboard, you kind of go, really? Yeah. I mean, what am I doing here? I have no understanding what this, you know, how this is done. It's like, you know, Greek or magic tricks or something. And he introduced me to these guys who had done this experiment with speech aligned to text, mm. not with transcription, not with video, but just kind of karaoke style. Right. And I just said, oh, that's cool. I never really thought about it, but why do I have to transcribe in the 21st century the way they did in the 20th century when, you know, isn't like automated speech good enough? Yeah. And they, they hadn't done anything in that area, but they, but it just sort of, I just kind of asked a curious question. And one of the developers, this really smart Romanian guy said, well, what do you mean? What would the solution have to look like? And I, I didn't really know the answer. And I, I, we talked for a bit and they went their way and I went mine and we, they, none of them lived in London and we kind of communicated by Skype. And I was really interested in trying to, trying to answer his question. What would the solution have to look like? So after some discussions, we tried a speech to text algorithm and we tried to do this word alignment, but then it had to be editable, which it wasn't. And anyway, after a lot of back and forth, using what, some of my interviews as test tapes, we came up with a solution and, and I just said, holy cow, we've just invented the future. Mm. We have to do something with this because it didn't work at that point, yeah, but yeah. it showed promise. And I said, I have no idea how to 
do any of this, but I know that the world needs this solution. Either we get together and try to make this happen, or we just say so long, never see each other again, and you're going to walk into a Starbucks in a couple of years, and somebody's going to have built this. Yeah. So essentially, you know, the way I see it in retrospect, I was out on a flat ocean on a surfboard just as the wave was starting to form. Right. And I just happened to see that wave because I fit this kind of classic profile of a, a late stage entrepreneur. I have lived the problem that I'm solving. Yes. And so I have a deep understanding. If it has to work for me if it's going to work for you as a journalist and millions of others. And the hypothesis was if it worked for me, it probably was going to work for a lot of others. And I don't know. I just got this fire and I just said, holy cow, this is a really interesting opportunity. We have to do this. And I think they thought I was nuts. Mm. I mean, and in retrospect, I was. You know, you live in the valley. All of these companies start with a vision and a passion to move it forward to see if you can do it. That's what drove it. And an understanding. In retrospect, I put it this way. I grew up in the 20th century in really what, what was uh, the text economy. Yeah. As a little boy, I read newspapers on print. When I traveled, I wrote postcards. My parents and grandparents would have sent telexes and telegrams. You got your news from radio and TV, but it was quite a passive experience. Yeah. You know, you spoke on the telephone, but you didn't, you know, you didn't record in those days. Maybe as an early reporter, I did, but on that reel-to-reel cassette. But it was a text-driven economy. Along come the 1980s and, and you know, Bill Gates and others developed you know, word processing, which became Microsoft Word yeah. and all those other things, to make the, the spoken word or text word searchable, discoverable, shareable, malleable, all of those things. So you can go through your computer and you can search a phrase or you can go yeah. through the New York Times website and find it. We now live not in the text economy, but in the voice economy. And we live on the voice internet. And we need tools to navigate the voice internet, to to find content, to optimize value, to share ideas in a way that make it as, as dexterous, as nimble as text is. And that's really where the market opportunity is. And that's why, since you and I first talked three years ago, there's been so much progress because, you know, that is the reality. Yeah. Most of the traffic on the internet is now audio and video. And look at the growth. Of, we, you and I talked in 2017 first time. Look where podcasting has come yeah, since yeah. then. Yeah. I mean, you even have one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Case in point. Um, in terms of the technology, is everybody working with the same technology? Was there like a Google API that under that is underlying this explosion of sudden suddenly all these so, companies? So, so that's a really interesting question. So the, the history of speech to text goes back to I think the sixties and seventies when supercomputers mm. first nineteen sixties and seventies when supercomputers first started to come along. It was in the beginning of the 21st century when storage capacity in increased exponentially yeah. and the speed of computing increased exponentially, basically so you could put a lot of information on the head of a pin or much smaller, that the ability for speech-to-text to start to actually be useful really became transformative. And it really, I don't know precisely when, but it's not much more than 10 years that speech-to-text has been within the range of us usable accuracy for more than more than sort of general trends. Yeah. I mean, it was initially used in, in call centers for finding words or, yeah. or you know, keywords or trends and stuff, but as a kind of consumer or professional tool. What's happened since then is that there are probably, I, I don't know, 10, 20 algorithms out there, but really only about six major ones. It's kind of a solved science now, speech to text. Yeah. You know, the, the AI part of it, the meaningful differentiation between the top six players, Amazon, Google, and the others, 
is in, mostly inconsequential. Yeah. IBM, for reasons I don't understand, Watson is far behind. I've never quite understood why. But they each have a like brand. a publicly available API or algorithm. Yeah, you, you can upon use which it you can build. to a limited degree. There's yeah, some of them offer free for a limit, but you know if you want to use it commercially, you pay for that, and then or you can develop your own. I mean, you can you can create your own data science team or work with teams, external teams, and develop or license, which is what a lot of you know a lot of the companies have done too. To a certain degree, the focus on the AI, and this is I think a theme throughout where you live in the mm. valley, is a slightly misplaced focus. It's it's not simply the AI. AI in itself is is not a value. It's what you do with it. Yeah. And so, you know, where Trent takes it much, much further than the other companies in the ecosystem is we take AI and then we add a layer, layer upon layer of what, what I call applied AI, meaning the, the productivity tool, the software experience, the user, the UX and the UI, the user experience, user interface that allows people to do things and that, and, and that solves the actual workflow problem that you and I have lived with. And, mm. Wow, I knew none of these terms when I began five years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, I kind of laugh and I think, oh my gosh! If, if only uh, you knew how much, really how little you knew. I did know how little I knew. <laughs> I think one of the things about being a journalist, there, being a journalist actually turns out is actually pretty good training for being an entrepreneur because one, you know how to hustle; two, you know how to deal with the reality you're facing and just make it work. You know how to ask for help when you're in trouble because yeah. when you're, you know, when you work for ABC and you go on air and you didn't fact check, you don't last long. So you got to be able to say, hey, I'm not sure about this. Can, can somebody yeah. confirm this? And you have to be able to say, hey, I don't understand this. Can we get somebody to explain that help, helps understand this? So I think that kind of humility comes with those high profile jobs or with any journalist yeah. job. And it turns out it's a pretty good uh, they're pretty good ingredients uh, for for people who are first time entrepreneurs because you know you you know have to know what you don't know but you have to know how to how to find answers yeah. uh, and ask questions and one of my sort of ongoing jokes of self deprecation is that I feel like this has been a five year project in writing startups for dummies um, <laughs> and you know this is uh, you know this is my every time I think I'm nearing the end of a chapter another chapter appears and it's like wow we're now a scaling company I mean the company the company a, a few months ago was 48. We just hired two more people yesterday. We're 65. We have 11 openings. We'll be close to 80 soon. I mean, wow. we're under coronavirus. We've actually seen incredible growth uh, because we enable remote working. Because, I was going to say, you know, I things, presume that, I mean, you're one of those few companies who's actually, I mean, it's all horrendous, but benefiting from this massive shift to video calls and everything, doing everybody working remotely. Well, yeah. And if you're on your own and, you know, you work in normally in a collaborative forum, one, we allow you to work together, even if you're apart. And two, if you don't have anybody helping you, we can do the heavy lifting for you so you can focus on. I like to put it this way. We use AI to liberate you from the menial so you can focus on the meaningful. We actually enable people to do their jobs. You know, you know sometimes people tease me about, you know, oh, you know, what's it like taking people's jobs away? But that's not really relevant to our kind of AI and our kind of product. Because in fact, what we do is in a world of diminishing resources, more and more platforms for content, we allow you to focus on producing content, not spending, like you just said, you know, three hours to transcribe a one hour yeah. interview so you can start writing. Well, guess what? You know, with Trent, you put it through and you can sit down and start writing in, you know, in minutes and exactly. say, where did she talk about fear? Oh, here's the moment. For me, it's so interesting because it's the one thing especially working at a print publication. And obviously we're moving much more to digital again, 
largely accelerated dramatically by coronavirus. But it is the biggest change in my work life since I've been doing journalism. And especially with podcasting, it is a total game changer. So let me go back to the 1990s. I was a national reporter at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation mm -hmm. in Toronto and, a, and an anchor. And this thing called dot .com, as we called it then, yeah. comes along. Or I think actually one of the anchors, the first time they put it up on the screen at CBC National News, the, the big network newscast, said uh, CBC.ca or something, which was the, the, the website, or CBC.ca. Because, I mean, it, the whole concept was so new. And, yeah. and it was like, wow. When dot-com came along in the newsroom, and we, you know, you're a, a national reporter, you file for the national, they said, oh, you know, dot-com, cbc.ca, dot-com wants you to do a story. It was like, eh, I'm busy. Exactly. And it was yep, like, totally. it, it was really the bastard stepchild of the newsroom. Fully. Any reporter who was in a newsroom in the 90s would know that nobody's looking at and it. In it the, and to be, true, to be truthful, in the aughts as well. I mean, you always want to be in the newspaper. I was at The Independent and then, you know, for the past oh, uh, yeah. 11 years at The Times. And it's, it's and for some people, and a lot of people in the newsroom, that is still the case. You want to be in the newspaper yeah. first. Right, exactly. And there was like, what do you mean? It's just going on online. It's not going to go, yeah. you know, on the newscast. It's not going to go in tomorrow's paper. And that was considered, oh, like that's a bronze medal. Yeah. You know, I don't want bronze medals. Yeah. And, and then there was this shift, I think, sometime after, you know, 2003, 2005, where actually you got to pay attention to this. And mm -hmm. actually you're paid to do this. And I think what happened, I was at ABC News at that point. I, I, would, I'd been, I moved from CBC to CBS in New York where, uh, in 97. And even then, CBSnews.com was still – pretty much the the orphan yeah. and struggled to get us you know it was really kind of a competition to see how long you could avoid writing for cbsnews.com by the time i moved to abc in 2001 it was starting to get better the design it was more malleable or more friendly and then i think the big change was when newsroom started to move the so-called dot-com or online teams out of a separate room into the main newsroom mm. And you, you have these kind of sort of multi-functional hubs. If you've ever been to the BBC headquarters here, you know, there's a massive room. Yep. Normally, without coronavirus, it would hold hundreds of people. And there's a whole huge, huge section next to the video section of the social media, the online yeah. people. And they're just as important in today's world in certain ways, maybe more important. When that happened about 15 years ago, that's when the transformation really happened in terms of the prioritization and how we started to outlook to do stuff. But what that meant, and the reason this comes back to print, is that a single piece of content that just went on the newscast mm. tonight or in the paper tomorrow, and, and therefore had a fairly, in most cases, if not luxurious, manageable deadline, mm. suddenly you had you know, Facebook and, and Twitter were coming along. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, you've got to get it on, on social media. And by the way, you know, speed we, we or the speed all video. sped up. So a single piece of content yeah. could go to in a, in a major news organization, could go to six, 10, 20 different platforms. You look at CNN or the BBC or, you know, yeah. um, uh, NBC, which has CNBC, which has MSNBC, you know, which has the Weather Channel. A single piece of content might have to go to 15, 20 different platforms within the news organization at the same time and you know we had a senior executive from cnn came to do one of our what we call lunch and learns with the team um, yeah. earlier this year before lockdown came and she said you know we now 
don't allow content to go on a single platform before it can be accessed by every platform. Mm. Otherwise, we can put it on one CNN arm, NBC picks it up and they're broadcasting it on TV before CNN even, you know, right. video knows. So that's why you need to be able to find content, collaborate on it quickly and get it out there. And so that's where the acceleration of demand for a product like Trent has come. The train is now approaching junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Mogentarder. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider træt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt. Det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. 
like I said, I didn't have a master plan. Yeah. I mean, when I call myself the accidental entrepreneur, I'm being honest. If you had told me 10 years ago that this was even going to happen in my life, I would have bet you a large sum of money with odds very favorable to you mm. that there was no way I was going to leave the best job in the world, you know, as a, as a foreign correspondent for ABC News to do this. I mean, there was just no way I would have 10 years ago. I was just rocking it, uh, having the most interesting, challenging stories. In fact, in 2010, I was the lead correspondent in the Gulf oil spill, spent four months living in the Mississippi Delta, then went straight down to Chile to be the first foreign reporter to cover the Chile mine rescue mm. and spent most of the seven weeks of that rescue in the Atacama Desert on what was in 30 years probably the most fascinating story of my life yeah. and the most logistically difficult. What was the moment where you're like... Well, the moment know? was that light bulb moment when I worked with those developers, you know, worth talking to them on Skype in, in uh, 2014, I guess it was, when we kind of just poodled around, you know, remotely and said, what would it have to do? To answer your question about when did I realize it had to be more yeah. than a transcription service that could be copied, there was a natural evolution because I recognized that I wanted to do more for me. And what was very interesting, you know, you flattered us and said you felt it was like magic. A lot of people who use the product do. And what's really cool about software that solves a problem is that people feel a sense of investment and excitement about yeah. it. And so they're very, very open about telling you what they wish it would do. And so what you start to see is this huge amount of validation coming from users saying, this would be great, but can you do translation? And it's like, well, why would you use it? What do you want? And, you know, as you develop a product team, you start to start ask those questions. And so, you know, we, Google runs this, um, has run this program in Europe called the uh, Digital News Innovation Fund. Mm. I think it's now called the Google News Initiative. And we won two grants from Google, uh, initially 50,000 euros um, very early on to build one of our early products, and then a 300,000 euro grant to build our translation tool. And we released it sometime in early 19. And it, you, know, you can take this conversation, print it, put it in any of 50-something languages instantly. Or you could be doing this right. interview in Portuguese, which I don't speak, print it, and translate it into English. It's not going to be 100%. But you're going to understand, yeah. you know, where is the moment where, you know, the prime minister of Portugal is talking about fisheries and right. whatever, you know, you want or tourism and coronavirus. Yeah. Um, I think they have a president, not a prime minister. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> um, but the point being that these come organically from the users and from and also from our own blue skying. We actually have a very clear roadmap that can take takes us a couple of years in. I mean, it doesn't mean that we know what I'll be will be doing in December of 23, but we know the, what on that list, and that's always being challenged yeah. and changed and prioritized. As I've learned as a first time entrepreneur, you, you always have to ask yourself, what is the business case for adding this to the product? It, will it make the product more valuable, more stickable? Will it make more useful? Will people pay extra for it? What is it going to take to actually build this. I mean, is it if it's just a week and it's just cool, yeah. then maybe we can do it. But if this is going to be take an engineering team and product team of eight people six months to do, we better darn well know what we think we're going to get out of it. And so, you know, that's where we're at. And so, you talk about yes, people can go to other products, but yes, you can buy a cheap car for what you know twenty thousand US, and yeah. you can buy a you can buy a, a used car for five thousand. But lots of people buy. Tesla's. much better cars and bmws and audis why because it's a better experience it does more things for you it's safer in their case we're more secure and it's just a more intelligent uh, vehicle 
that's the nature of business, you know, meaningful differentiation of, of products uh, yeah. and product offerings. So we're unapologetic. We are an innovation-led company, product-led company, solving problems for users. And you know, one of the things about Trint, it, it taught me this, this concept. Trint solves a problem that I didn't even know I had. Somebody in California a few years ago had this idea of seeing if there was a way to wash lettuce and mm. package it in a way that it wouldn't go bad. Yeah. And by putting this inert gas into the plastic, uh, into the bag, the lettuce would last a week or 10 days without turning brown. I mean, there's an example of solving a problem I didn't know I had. I mean, yeah. you know, when we were kids, our moms washed lettuce yeah. because you had to. And we learned to wash lettuce when we went to university or whatever. And we, you know, and that's just what you did. It wasn't a problem. It's just what you did if you yeah. wanted to have a salad. And then this guy solved a problem we didn't even know we had. Well, Trent solves a problem we didn't even know we had. Transcription was just part of it. And there are lots of parts of the productivity workflow beyond transcription that we now, you know, with translation, collaboration, and some of the stuff that's in our innovation teams right now yeah. uh, to be released this year and in the future uh, that solve problems that people didn't even know they had because they didn't think it was possible. How much money have you raised? Because you say you're up to 80 people, almost on your way to 80 people. That's substantial. So we, in UK pounds, I think it's about 7.8 million pounds. So that's uh, in dollars, about 10 million. Yeah. Our revenue is really strong now. And so we're not, you know, we're, we continue to hire, you know, we're debating whether we, we might want to raise some more money, but, but it's not because we need to, it's because we might, you know, just to accelerate growth, but it, it is pretty amazing, but we're in a very strong position financially in a time when I wanted to do anything but gloat about it because friends of mine are, you know, seeing their companies struggle and, and collapse. And, you know, I take zero joy, in, you know, in being, in seeing that happen around, but this space of workflow productivity was ripe for exploration and development. You know, I actually just wrote a piece about this, that, you know, this coronavirus lockdown, the fact that it happened just now mm. is really, really interesting because the alignment of the software opportunities happens to have put us in a position where we can actually, for a lot of professional jobs, can be sustained and remote in a way that 10 years ago would not have been possible. Yeah. And a lot of the life we do, forget work, but I mean, you're, you're talking about Netflix and taking virtual yoga. Uh, you're talking about ordering from Amazon. Yeah. All of that 10 years ago wouldn't have been happening. No. I mean, as, as, as debilitating as lockdown is for all of us today, imagine what it would have been like 10 years ago or go back, you know, 20, 30 years yeah, ago. Yeah. I mean, you would have seen complete economic collapse. The extension of that is that all of these software tools like Slack, like Zoom, like Trint, are enabling people to do things that would not have been physically possible a, a few years ago. So it's a really interesting alignment yeah. of this historical catastrophe and the rise of, of software that does so many things that, and enables. Them. What was your worst day of work? <laughs> mm. Um that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, there were some. Let me put this diplomatically. Okay. Uh, there were some. There were some pretty stormy moments in the early days of this company. They won't be uh, surprising to uh, a lot of founders in Silicon Valley, but people's visions clash, and it can get pretty ugly. Mm. And there were moments like that. There were a couple that were were um, pretty difficult and pretty existential about whether it was worth it. 
it was one of the hardest tests to sort of make it through all of that and conflict of, of vision and, and execution. And there were moments when I thought the emotional toll of this is just too difficult. It's yeah. just not worth it. And, you know, my kind of, uh, I guess the neon sign on, on my imaginary wall across from my desk says my definition of failure is not trying. And I just wasn't prepared to walk away. Yeah. I knew that this could work and I just felt like it just has to happen. And so getting through that period candidly was, was really, really difficult and one of the hardest tests of my life. But I did, we did. It also made it really important for me to create a positive culture in the company. Cause mm -hmm. I think one of the great joys and one of the biggest surprises, I knew that if we could build this tool, it would be an ama amazingly satisfying. I've never managed people, you know, as a reporter, yeah, yeah. as a correspondent, network correspondent, I never had direct reports. I never had an annual review. I never had a 360. I was on, always on performance contract. And so, um, what I really resolved was that I wanted to build a happy, a place where people really enjoyed working and, and that had a positive culture and, and building a team that shares those values, uh, that's excited, that's collaborative, that's, that's authentic, that doesn't, you know, I, I, I actually said to somebody who was uh, in a job interview, um, 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 I, I you know, this is a company where there are three, the, the three B's are banned, no bitching, uh, no backstabbing, no bullshit. And she looked at me, she said, where do I sign up? Because, you know, I, I mean, you know, being a network correspondent too was really tough. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a highly competitive, high stakes, high money uh, uh, job. And, you know, uh, when you're competing for airtime, competing against other networks for stories and other news organizations, um, it's not always the nicest no. place. No, no. I just kind of have this view at this stage of my life. The destination really matters, but I want to. I think we should find a way to make it to, to enjoy the journey, which doesn't mean it's a leisurely walk by any means. But I don't believe that yelling at people or being a being a, a nasty boss is the way to motivate people. And uh, and it really, really infuses the culture with this passionate, enthusiastic, collaborative sense of authenticity. And you talk about the worst. That's the best, I think. Yeah. And the hardest part about lockdown for me is that I love working with this team and, you know, I see everybody virtually and it's like, oh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let's go for a walk. Let's have a coffee. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, thank you for being so generous with your time and I wish you luck. <laughs> stay tuned. Yeah, I will. And, I uh, will. Uh, watch, watch this space, but, but hey, thanks and stay healthy. Yeah, likewise. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Jeff for taking the time to speak. I want to thank you for listening. And for, of course, just sending in all of those fabulous reviews and ratings for this podcast. Keeps my boss very happy. I will be writing about ooh, tons of stuff this weekend. I don't want to spoil it, but there's some good stuff in the paper. So do check that out. Subscribe to the Sunday Times, please. Anyhow, thank you for listening. You can also find me on Twitter, at Danny Fortson. You can email me with any questions or any suggestions at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk That is all I have. Keep well. Talk soon. Bye-bye. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. 
That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skrætter alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmagle.